following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. What's your if only? If only I get married, I'll finally be happy. If only I get that job I interviewed for, my career will finally start taking off and my work will be satisfying. If only I could afford to buy a house and put down roots, then I'd finally be able to live the way that I want to. Maybe you see the danger of loading all your hopes for happiness onto the small rickety cart of a spouse or job or home. So let's zoom out. Don't think about one thing, but think about the whole thing. What is it that gives meaning to your life? Have you been able to lay hold of that meaning and hang on to it? For many people, the meaning of life is still out there. It's something that you can find and grab and keep. Many young people are restless because they are so busy constantly getting ready to be happy. If only I can get over this hill and around that bend, then I'll finally find it. Some people grow resentful when they don't find what they're looking for because they don't get it. They try to find somebody to blame for it. They go looking for a scapegoat. Others become all the more driven when they don't get what makes them happy. Or maybe you've achieved all your goals, but something is still missing. So you think, aha, it must be that my goals weren't big enough the first time around. So then you set out to find bigger, bolder, higher goals. You blame the things you have and double down on getting better things, new job, new car, new clothes, new friends, new achievements. But let's say you've cleared every hurdle in front of you. You've attained one set of goals and then another. But you still feel restless. You still feel empty. Who's left to blame at that point when you've racked up achievement after achievement, pleasure after pleasure, enjoyment after enjoyment, but it still feels empty? Who can you blame but yourself? And so maybe you despair. You quit. You give up. You just sink back into life like it's a couch and watch it go by. Restless, resentful, driven, despairing. Do you see yourself in any of those profiles? Uh, As Marty just read, our passage for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12 through all of chapter 2. So half of chapter 1, all of chapter 2. In our passage, the book's author and protagonist, who calls himself the teacher, he goes on a quest for the meaning of life. He sets out to test and to discover by experience what the good life is. You can see this uh, in chapter 2, verse 3, the second part of that verse, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their, of their lives. He's trying to find out what makes for a satisfying life. Where is the meaning of life? What can make people happy? Now, that's his quest in the passage, and we're going to follow him on that quest. But before we jump into his quest, I want us to provide some big-picture orientation for the book as a whole. Even in the reading we just had, you might have thought, this is not normal church stuff. This is not the typical kind of thing you walk into church on a Sunday morning expecting to hear. So I'm going to provide some orientation to the whole book, which will make for a slightly longer than normal sermon intro. Ecclesiastes is a difficult book. And in some ways, the reason it's so difficult is because it systematically shatters our illusions. And the poet T.S. Eliot said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Ecclesiastes is a hard book because it's a bleak book. Like the famous saying in chapter 7, verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He's saying better a funeral than a party. If there's wisdom there, it's hard wisdom. 
It's wisdom that takes work to see. It's wisdom that you wouldn't exactly put on a Hallmark greeting card you're going to mail out to someone. Better a funeral than a party. Ecclesiastes only makes sense if you have some inkling that life is hard, that life can be bleak, and that some of the shiny surfaces we put up and some of the happy dreams and stories we tell ourselves are actually shields from life's hardness and bleakness. And in order to get down to the bottom of things, we need someone to come along and tear those comforting layers away. We need a book like a diamond that can cut through whatever we put in front of the reality of life and get down to what our lives are actually made of. Ecclesiastes it can also be a difficult book, not just emotionally because of the subject matter, but also because of the way the book works, the way it's structured. There's a lot of bleak parts. There's a lot of shattering of our illusions, but there's also a lot of really happy statements side by side, a lot of really positive statements about joy, enjoyment, life, work, food and drink, marriage. There's all kinds of celebrations that pop up, and you're thinking, okay, well, I could understand a kind of consistently bleak book that's all about how life is terrible and miserable, but then what about all these happy parts? How do those fit in? For instance, one of those statements in chapter 5, verse 18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. So to help us get a sense of the whole book, here are four overall perspectives on what Ecclesiastes is. Just little images or takeaways for you to, you know, you could take some notes, stick it in your Bible, leave it there. The next time you get to your Ecclesiastes and your yearly Bible reading plan, here's a little bit of help for what the whole book is. Number one, Ecclesiastes is a question. In a sense, it puts a question to us. The book is far more asking questions than giving answers. And even in terms of the actual sentences of the book, there's a whole lot of sharp, pointed questions. In chapter 3, verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? The very next verse, 322, who can bring someone to see what will be after them? Or chapter 6, verse 12, for who knows what is good for man? while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Why so many questions? As one writer put it, Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ is the answer. In inspiring the book of Ecclesiastes, God is acting like the ancient philosopher Socrates, all Socrates did in his whole life, according to Plato, was walk around asking people difficult, uncomfortable questions. He provoked people into thinking. That's kind of what the Lord is doing through the book of Ecclesiastes. He's asking us searching questions that make us squirm, questions we'd rather not ask. Thank you very much. But better a good question than a bad answer. What G.K. Chesterton said of the book of Job is equally true of Ecclesiastes. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. Ecclesiastes is like a photo negative of the rest of the Bible. It draws the outline of our need, our want, our emptiness. Ecclesiastes is showing us the vacuum where something solid and satisfying should be, but isn't. Secondly, Ecclesiastes is a journey. The whole book is a journey. It's a quest. Uh, the teacher, like we see here, goes on a quest for the good life, and he's also on a quest for truth, for meaning, for knowledge, and especially in the first half of the book, the first six or so chapters. And that journey is especially prominent in our passage. Uh, at the end of chapter 7, the author reflects on his journey as a whole. He says in chapter 7, verse 23, All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? He tells us what he sought and didn't find. Verse 27, he added one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. He tried to find the big picture of this whole world. Verse 29, the only thing he found with any certainty God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search 
of many schemes. All he discovered is that human beings are fundamentally crooked. All he discovered is that this world is bent out of shape. It's a long, hard journey. And in one sense, the lesson he learns is bitter. But in order to to, to sit with this book and for this book to do its work on us, you have to view it as a journey. You have to hop in for the ride. You have to walk those hard, long miles yourself in order for the book to work on you. Third, Ecclesiastes is a little bit like a stand-up comics routine. Ecclesiastes is just a little like a stand-up comic. Every stand-up comic adopts a certain point of view, a certain persona. They're not meaning everything they say to be taken with absolute literal strictness. So when Jerry Seinfeld says to his young child at home, hey, I noticed you're very fond of your G.I. Joe toys and that you have a habit of leaving them out everywhere so that uh, people step on them and hurt their feet and trip over them and fall down the stairs. Wouldn't it be a shame if anything ever happened to one of your G.I. Joe toys? Wouldn't it be a shame if one turned up with no head or missing arm? Now, Jerry Seinfeld acting as mob boss to his child and threatening his G.I. Joe toys, I don't think we're meant to take that literally. Who knows? Maybe in his own household he really did. But, But the point is, he's adopting a certain persona to reflect on the absurdities of what parents will go through to try to have a little order in their homes. Or you could take Jim Gaffigan comparing parenting to being in a cult using the American Family Foundation's definition of a cult. The group members, parents, display an excessively zealous, unquestioning commitment to an individual, their child. Members, parents, subservience to the group, children, causes them to cut ties with family and friends and to give up personal goals and activities that were of interest before joining the group. Stand-up comedians and the author of Ecclesiastes both squint in order to bring something important into focus. Like a stand-up comic, the teacher of Ecclesiastes adopts a certain persona throughout most of the book. He's looking at life from a certain angle. His angle is considering all that can be learned simply by observing, experiencing, and analyzing life under the sun. He's just telling us what he can see that if you have your eyes open and you look around, you'll see the same things he sees. That's what he's taking his claim on. He is telling us the truth. But in much of the book, knowingly, self-consciously, he's not telling us the whole truth. He's saying, guys, look around and see what you see. And life doesn't always make sense. Life doesn't always work out the way you want to. This world doesn't always do what you desire or demand. And sometimes nothing you can try or do will make any difference. You can see that by observation. You can see that by living. That's a lot of what the book of Ecclesiastes is. Fourth, Ecclesiastes is like the view from a three-story building. So three stories, ground floor, middle floor, top floor. The ground floor is that observational level I was just talking about. It's the, it's the teacher experiencing life, observing it, looking around, watching, drawing conclusions. And what he concludes over and over again is that life is fleeting. Life vanishes. Life disappears. Not only is life fleeting, life's also sometimes futile. You don't get out what you put in. Rewards are not always equitably distributed. Not only is life sometimes futile, it's even absurd. Meaning there's things we yearn for, things we desire, things we deeply want to get out of life, and then we just keep getting the opposite. Someone who's totally undeserving just lands into fortune and prosperity and blessing. And, you know, the person who's just universally beloved and a delight to their parents and their neighborhood and their soccer coach, well, that person gets killed in a car crash at age 19. This life is just full of contradictions. This life is full of things not going according to any kind of sense at all. That's what the teacher sees on the ground floor. Then you have to climb up one floor. If all of life is vanity, fleeting, futile, even absurd, if you climb up one floor, then he brings God into the picture. And he says, wait a minute, life is also a gift. Life is also given to us, not randomly, not by chance, not by the uh, chance atoms striking each other and eventually this whole world developing according to some grand theory of evolution. Life is a gift. It comes from a loving creator and all the good things in life, even though they are fleeting, even though they are temporary, they're beautiful and enjoyable and they're worth celebrating. 
they're worth making the most of, especially by gratitude. And that's one thing we'll get to in a few minutes. Ground floor, everything is vanity. Middle floor, everything is a gift. Top floor, and there's just a few statements about this, but just to take one, in the book of Ecclesiastes, just to look at one, you'll see kind of, you'll see kind of the whole range here. Chapter 3, verse 16, the teacher goes looking at the law courts, and he sees perversion of justice. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. The very places meant to deal out justice are corrupt. The very places meant to deal out justice deal out their opposite. Something is fundamentally wrong with trying to get things right in society here and now. Then he says, verse 17, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. So in this life, we see things out of whack. And yet, life is a gift from God that we should fully enjoy and give thanks for. But seeing life as a gift from God doesn't solve the problem of injustice. It doesn't solve the problem of people not getting what they deserve. It doesn't solve the problem of things being fundamentally bent and out of shape. But there's glimpses, there's hints, there's little light poking through the kind of dark fabric of the sky of this book saying, this life isn't all there is. There will be a final reckoning. There will be a final righting of all wrongs. Ecclesiastes doesn't spell out a whole lot about that, but it does over and over again confess God's judgment. And ultimately, that's a good thing. Ultimately, God will right those wrongs. So that's a little bit of an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. You could summarize by saying Ecclesiastes demolishes in order to build. Like if you're trying to tear down a condemned, you know, apartment building in the middle of a city, there has to be demolition before reconstruction. And Ecclesiastes has a whole lot of demolition, but it does demolish in order to rebuild. You have to let this book hurt you before it will heal you. That's just the discipline you have to submit to and undergo when you read Ecclesiastes. It has to hurt before it heals. To give us context for this passage, uh, in the first 11 verses of the book, the teacher writes a poem about nature whose central point is that there is no lasting gain in this life. All of nature's processes are cycles. They're circles. Rain comes down, it flows through the rivers all the way out to the oceans, and then it evaporates and comes down as rain again. The seasons go through and then they come again. The wind blows and then it blows from the opposite direction and blows from the same direction again. There's no ultimate lasting gain. There's nothing you can set aside and keep when the game is all over. That's his opening statement in the first 11 verses. Then, as I said, and as we've heard a moment ago, starting in chapter 1, verse 12, he begins this quest to discover the meaning of life. So, at last we come to our passage, and the question that runs through the whole passage for this morning is this. Where can you find the good life? Where can you find the good life? The answer comes in four parts. Point one, not in learning. Not in learning. We'll see this in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, and then chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Not in learning. Look first at chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Here the teacher introduces his whole quest and gives us an executive summary of the results. Verse 13, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. He's saying he took a comprehensive survey of life 
In his life, he lived many lives, and he lived all of them to the full. He went all in on learning, all in on pleasure, all in on work, all in on any possible way to find the good life. So in the rest of, the cha- of chapter 1 and chapter 2, the teacher reports the results of his quest. He's like someone who tests high dives in a swimming pool. Imagine a series of high dives in a series of pools. He climbs up, he dives in, and each time he discovers that there is not enough water in the pool to sustain such a high dive. So he hits the bottom, and he comes up injured, and then he goes on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. So he's bruised, he's battered, he's learning by experience that the promises all these things in the world make are not deep enough to satisfy He is learning that the hard way. He's got the bruises to prove it. He's got the bleeding and the bandages. And he's coming back to us saying, guys, I've tried it all. And none of it will satisfy. Verse 13 tells us he tested all things by wisdom. And verses 16 and 17 tell us that that the teacher gained more wisdom than anyone. And that wisdom is one of the things he set out to know. One of the things he set out to test. Is wisdom a reliable path to the good life? So in other words, in testing all things by wisdom, he's putting wisdom itself to the test. He's testing wisdom's limits. He's looking for the limits of what knowledge can give you. And what does he find? Verse 17, I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. And here's the reason, verse 18, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Knowledge is not always power. Sometimes what you do know can hurt you because sometimes knowledge only gives you insight without influence. It gives you clarity without control. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. When this world is fundamentally broken, cursed, futile, out of whack, The more you learn about it, the sadder you'll be. And so the teacher is faithfully reporting that actually, the more you know, the worse things look. He returns to this same theme in chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. So we'll take this a little bit out of order, skip ahead. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. This passage doesn't deny that wisdom has any value at all. Verse 14 tells us that wisdom is like opening your eyes and folly is like shutting them. If you're wanting to walk through a crooked little path through the forest to go on a nice nature hike, you'll be better served by doing that with your eyes open than your eyes closed. And wisdom opens them. Better to know the truth, however cold and comfortless, than to swaddle yourself in illusions. But the second half of verse 14 stings. I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then the end of verse 16, like the fool, the wise too must die. Wisdom cannot provide an escape velocity that will propel you beyond the gravitational pull of death. No matter how smart you get, death will come for you too. No matter how high your learning takes you, death will drag you all the way back down. Education is a crucial cornerstone of the modern meritocracy our country likes to think it is. Politicians of all stripes champion education as the key to preparing the next generation to compete in a global economy. 
education. All politicians agree. It's a key to lifting people out of poverty. It's a key to opportunity, advancement, success, and ultimately, happiness. That's the promise our society makes on education's behalf. Kids in school and teenagers here today, I'm not telling you that your education has no value. Listen to your parents when they tell you to work hard. There are more blessings that you will get out of your education than you realize. I wish I paid better attention in my history classes when I was in high school. There's stuff I wish I had time to learn now that I could have learned back then. So listen to your parents. Do work hard. Apply yourself. But also ask the question, what promises are being made if I do this? What's the end goal supposed to be? Is it that I'm supposed to get into a good college so I can get a good job and live a happy life and get a big house and live happily ever after? Or is education about something else? Is education about learning more of the wisdom of God? Is education about learning more about God and His world and yourself? Is education about growing in virtue and godliness? Or is it just a means to a self-serving end? The, the book of Ecclesiastes is asking uncomfortable questions about education. The teacher himself undertook the ultimate educational quest. He got a PhD, not in math or political science, but in life. As we're going to see, he passed comprehensive exams in pleasure and profit, art and architecture, sensuality and success. And what did he conclude? Chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. One of the most deadly illusions of knowledge is that it gives you control. If I can only learn enough about this medical condition I have or might have or might soon have, well, then maybe I can control it. I can escape the worst. I can mitigate it. I can continue living my life the way I want to live it. But knowledge doesn't always give you control. And when you try to treat knowledge as a lever to try to bend the world according to your will, that lever will disappear. It'll evaporate in your hands. We want to use knowledge to bend the world to fit our desires. But control is an illusion. And so you won't find the good life in learning. Point two, not in pleasure. Where can you find the good life not in pleasure? The teacher recounts this for us in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Look, look with me again at those verses. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself in the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers in a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. In these verses, the teacher reports on his project of testing pleasure by experiencing it to the full. He sought out every pleasure he could find, and he experienced it to the fullest possible degree. He was king of Israel in Jerusalem, and so he had all the power and resources he needed to obtain for himself any pleasure he could want. It's important to remember that this passage is reporting, not endorsing. As will become clear, the teacher is not a model for us to emulate. Again, like the diver going off the high dive and hitting bottom, he's telling us what he learned the hard way. 
The variety of pleasures he immersed himself in is enough to make you dizzy. I count about 10. We'll just run through these quickly. Number one, humor. Speaking of stand-up comics, verse 2 tells us he tested laughter. He went to all the clubs and heard all the hottest comedians. Number two, alcohol. Verse 3 tells us he searched out how to cheer his body with wine. Number three, architecture. Verse 4 says he made great works, building houses and planting vineyards. These are big projects he pulled off skillfully and successfully. Number four, nature. Verses 5 and 6 say he developed gardens and parks and pools. It was his own kind of pleasure garden with all these varieties of trees growing and flowers and fruits growing. Number five, food. Verse 6, he planted all kinds of fruit trees. Number six, money and possessions. Verse 7 tells us he even treated people as property. Uh, verse 8, when it says he, he amassed silver and gold, uh, the treasure of kings and provinces, it's talking about gaining wealth from taxes and tribute. Number seven, music. Verse 8 tells us he trained a core of elite singers. Number eight, this one has some question mark. Uh, it could be about sex. The translation of verse 8 is disputed and difficult. It's possible this verse tells us he kept a harem. It's possible it means nothing of that sort, and it's about having kind of fine dining and utensils and that sort of thing. In any case, on to number nine, status. He says in verse nine that he became greater than any who were before him. And verse 10, finally, work. Work as a source of pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. He says, I refused my heart no pleasure. He had it all and everything he had was the best. Many details in this passage seem to echo Genesis 2. Gardens, fruit trees, silver, gold. In this experiment in pursuing pleasure to the full, it's as if the teacher is playing God. He's crafting his own personal, private Garden of Eden to see if that might actually satisfy him. But the experiment's results are just the same as before. We learn in verse 11, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, note here, he's not saying that all of his stuff failed. He's not saying it all got swept away in a flood or destroyed by a, a hurricane. He's not saying, well, it all crumbled and, and got ruined. He's saying, at the height of my powers, at the height of my pleasures, getting everything I could want on every possible front, somehow still proved empty. His point here in this passage is that after draining the glass of every pleasure he could find, the glass was empty and so was he. If you try to drain pleasure's cup to the bottom, at the end the glass will be empty and so will you. The point this passage makes is not that these pleasure are, pleasures are immoral, although some of them were, but the point is that they're futile. They don't satisfy they don't do the thing they promise. Every appetite you satisfy comes roaring back stronger. Pleasure promises satisfaction, but it leaves you wanting more, and there's always more you can have. So it's easy to believe the lie that the reason you're not yet satisfied is that you haven't yet had enough. But the teacher is saying, I had more than you ever will, and too much was never enough. Pleasures also promise distraction. Distraction from what? Whatever troubles you. Broken relationships, physical hardship, bad memories, overwhelming responsibility, disappointment and bitterness. Most of all, pleasures distract you from death. Imagine you return home after work and you find an elephant in your dining room. You would like to be able to eat dinner. You ask the elephant to leave, and it does not. It rather likes occupying your dining room. So how can you hide an elephant? Easy. Cover it with 10,000 post-it notes. That's what we 
try to do to death with pleasure. Distraction, enjoyment, entertainment, whatever it is, there are more ways than ever before to keep the largest and least pleasant thought from disturbing your enjoyment. The diversions of pleasure can act like sedatives. They keep us just content enough that we don't seek a real cure for the pain. Pleasures deaden our spiritual nerves. They drown out the spiritual fire alarm of your conscience that is blaring out, you have a problem. Point three, where can you find the good life? Not in success. Not in success. The teacher tells us this, reflecting on his own experience in chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all of the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and my skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. In verse 21, the word that's translated skill could also be translated as success. The teacher is not embittered because he failed. Instead, he's lamenting the fate of the successful. The more successful you are, the more you have to leave in the hands of a successor who may not have the right competence or character. He's talking not just about leaving money or an inheritance, but leaving his enterprise, leaving his business, all the things he worked up and got going and set in motion. He's talking about leaving that to someone who comes after. And it's a bitter thought. Whatever you amass through success and work, whether it's property or money or a prospering company, soon enough, it'll be someone else's hands on it and they can do whatever they want with it. You won't even be around to object. Success is not an end zone. It's a treadmill. The teacher's heart could not take rest in his success. It wouldn't last, and he couldn't guarantee his legacy. All that he worked for was going to be out of his hands soon enough. And so he began to think, why am I staying on this treadmill? Four years ago, the writer Derek Thompson wrote a brilliant article for The Atlantic entitled, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. Thompson, who as far as I know is not a Christian, argues that for America's college-educated elite, work has transformed into a religious identity. Work promises transcendence and community, things traditionally promised by religion, and work fails to deliver either. One recent study that Thompson cites showed that the main difference in outcomes between women who attended elite selective universities and those who didn't is that, on average, those who did attend the elite universities went on to work longer hours. The study did not show a significant difference of pay over time. It did show a significant difference of how much people worked. In other words, the reward for success is having to spend more time at work. The reward for speeding up the treadmill is now you have to run faster. As Thompson observes, when a culture funnels its dreams of self-actualization into salaried jobs, it is setting itself up for collective anxiety, mass disappointment, and inevitable burnout. Our desks were never meant to be our altars. The teacher's reward for all his success was hard days and sleepless nights. Have you ever been successful in such a way that your reward became hard days 
and sleepless nights. Success promises fulfillment, satisfaction, purpose, status, recognition, maybe even a legacy. Which of those promises are you personally most drawn to? Which could get their hooks into your heart most easily? Whatever work you do, whether it's in your own household or in the external household that we tend to call a workplace, what are you trying to get from your work? Again, the teacher went all the way to the end of the line with learning, pleasure, and success. Whether it was work or play, wisdom or folly, he dove into the deep end and he found the bottom with his forehead. If you're not a believer in Jesus, can you relate to his quest for the good life? Which of those pools he dove into is the most appealing to you personally? Which of those pools, if any, are you swimming in right now? trying to find out whether this can finally satisfy you. I want to point you in just a moment to a very different satisfaction, but I would encourage you to think about that question in light of your own heart. Where are you most drawn to try to find the good life? Where can you find the good life? Not in learning, not in pleasure, not in success. Point four, but in grace and gratitude. But in grace and gratitude. Look at the last three verses of the passage, verses 24 to 26. This is one of those times where after a whole lot of bleak stuff, we get this ray of sunshine bursting through, kind of out of nowhere. It's like when the weather changes, dark storm, low clouds. It it seems like it's eight o'clock at night, even though it's three in the afternoon. And then all of a sudden, the clouds leave and the sun shines. That's what's going on in these three verses at the end of the chapter. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases Him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, He gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, this passage presents us with the difficulty I mentioned at the beginning. He's talking about all the same stuff he was talking about before, work, happiness, possessions, enjoyment, and yet somehow his stance on them all is much more positive than it's been the whole time. What accounts for the difference. It sounds like he's doing a very quick 180 and without giving us any reason why. The way some people try to resolve that tension is by basically saying, life is really brutal, life is really rough, and all he's saying is, yeah, you can grab a few moments of pleasure here and there, so take them where you can get them. But I don't think that's doing full justice to his thoughts. I don't think he's saying, eat, drink, for tomorrow you die. I don't think he's commending a kind of resigned hedonism. I don't think that does justice both to this paragraph and to the several times that this kind of idea comes back up later in the book. So here is the main reason why I think he's saying something far more positive, something far more fundamental, and something far more ultimately hopeful. There's a word that is entirely missing from chapter 1, verse 14 through chapter 2, verse 23. There's a word that doesn't show up at all in that whole long passage that you might think would show up in a churchy book. That word is God. God is absent from chapter 1, verse 14 to chapter 2, verse 23. And then that simple word, God, shows up three times in this paragraph. God is now central God is now the giver. God is now the one who is ordering life and giving it and and causing it to happen. And so God has now displaced the striving self. In one sense, uh, the author is illustrating for us what Matt was introducing to us in the, the Heidelberg Catechism article that we, the question that we confessed together, and then saying, Christ our hope in life and death. For this life to be not your own, and for you yourself to be not your own, makes all the difference in the world. 
when life is not about what you can strive for and attain and achieve and grab hold of and keep for yourself, but when life is about what God has freely and graciously given you, that you can receive with gratitude and humility and open hands, it changes how you approach all the regular stuff of everyday life, from pleasure to education to work to success to relationships. It does make all the difference to receive them all as gifts, which is exactly what verse 24 says they are. This too I see is from the hand of God, meaning he, he thought it up, he created it, he ordained it, and he hand-delivered it to you. Whatever you had for breakfast this morning, God hand-delivered it to you. Whatever you're going to have for lunch, he more than, you know, friend, roommate, etc., husband, wife, restaurant, he's the one preparing it for you right now. Whatever work God has given you to do, he's ordained it. It comes to you as an assignment straight from him. Blessings, trials, beauty, hardship, it's all from his hand. And that makes all the difference. If you're looking for lasting gain in this life, you'll never find it. But if you receive everything good from God as a gift, then you'll run out of time counting your blessings. You'll never be able to stop. You'll see more gifts, more blessings than you could possibly take the time to enumerate. God has more good gifts to give you than you have places to put them. What distinguishes verses 24 to 26 from the rest of the passage is a doctrine of creation. Meaning this life is not just what you can sort of get out of it. This life is not just a random free-for-all. It's an ordered gift. It's a good thing by God's design given to us for our enjoyment. All of creation is a free and generous gift of God's grace. So the right response is not grasping and striving, but receiving and thanking. I imagine down here in Richmond, you don't get too many proper snow days. Up in D.C., uh, we pretty much went all winter without a snow day. <laughs> it's a real bummer for our kids. The best part about winter, and we didn't get a single one. We got like a quarter inch of snow one time. One of the beautiful things about a snow day is that it's not in your control. You can't predict it. You can't make it happen. You could just be a poor little kid waiting all you know, winter, staring out the window, hoping it's going to snow. And what about when it finally does? When the snow day finally comes... It's a gift. It's an unanticipated, unexpected blessing. It changes the way you see everything around you. It's all covered in snow. It's beautiful. It's shining. It's glimmering. There's all sorts of stuff you can do with the gift of snow, you know, eating it, melting it, making snowballs, making snowmen. There's so much you can do with it. There's so many ways to enjoy it. It's not in your control. You didn't invent it. You didn't come up with it. It doesn't come at your beck and call. It's also not going to last. Either it's going to like freeze and then you're going to start slipping on it or it's going to pile up and get to be too much or, you know, in Richmond or in D.C., more likely, it's going to melt away pretty quick. What the author of Ecclesiastes is saying in these final verses, by saying all these are gifts of God, all this is from the hand of God, he's saying life itself is a snow day. You can't control it. You can't command it. You can't freeze it and say, okay, just stop like this. This is all that my life's going to be. Just, just one day like this for the whole rest of my life. No, you, you can only receive what God gives you. And when you do, you become like the joyful, happy, self-abandoned kid who's just out there loving it. They're just absorbed in the goodness of the thing in front of them. They don't care about the cold. <laughs> They're not concerned about their pants getting soaked through and staying out for hours. They're just loving this gift they've received. And to view all of life as a gift from God and thereby to receive it with humility and thankfulness is to turn all of life into a snow day. So the whole book of Ecclesiastes is structured in such a way that you have to get the bad news before you can get the good news. You have to let it hurt you before it can heal you. And we need to hear even about this doctrine of creation that all of us have scorned God's gifts. All of us have distorted God's gifts. All of us have taken what should be gifts to pass through our hands and go to others. And we've twisted them. We've perverted them. We've used them to hurt and harm others. We've used them to aggrandize ourselves at the expense of others. We've lived for the wrong things like the teacher in his quest. And God will repay with eternal judgment all those who persist in that kind of self-serving idolatry. God will repay with eternal judgment all who persist in rejecting him as the giver of every good and perfect gift. 
And so uh, instead of simply executing vengeance against us because of all of our sins, God overflowed with another even more gracious, even greater gift, the gift of sending his own son into the world. Instead of simply punishing us, he gave a bigger gift, a gift now not merely bringing something out of nothing, but a gift of love in response to hate. God sent his only begotten son into the world to live for us and die for us. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty we all deserve for the ways we've abused and misused God's good gifts. He paid the penalty for our sins and rose from the dead in order to secure an abundant, glorified, everlasting life with God for all who trust in Him. Don't trust in yourself to secure your life's meaning. If you're not a believer in Jesus, don't trust yourself and your own quest to get yourself a life that can finally satisfy you because the teacher of Ecclesiastes is saying it won't and it can't. Instead, trust in Christ to save you from God's wrath. Trust in Christ to save you and you will find in him a meaning that no failure can erase and no success can ever compare with. Trust in Jesus as God's greatest gift. And your whole life will become one big gift from Him, whatever hardship or trials He sends your way. The book of Ecclesiastes is presenting us with a choice, much like the one that often gets presented to a suspect in any kind of police procedural or crime drama. Chris and I are fans of those kind of shows. Usually early on in the plot, some suspect gets hauled in. And the investigating detective says to them, all right, there's two ways we could do this. There's the easy way and the hard way. The easy way is you tell me everything you know about the situation, or the hard way is I start, you know, somehow applying pressure and making your life miserable. The book of Ecclesiastes says there's the easy way and the hard way. The easy way is learning from the teacher's quest and refusing to put our whole heart into the project of trying to have anything in this world satisfy us. The the book of Ecclesiastes is saying, I learned all this the hard way so you don't have to. And the shape that the hard way draws for us, the profile, the outline it sketches, shows us that what we deserve is way worse than the hard way that the teacher went through. What we deserve is none of these good gifts from God. We've scorned and perverted them all. But there is one who came to walk a way harder than the one the teacher walked. Jesus entered this world without gain and endured something much worse than vanity. He endured something much harder than futility. And he purchased for us an eternal inheritance so that none of our labor in him would be in vain. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would trust in Jesus as the one who can deliver from the vanity of this life. Father, we pray that we would not set our hope ultimately on anything in this life, like the uncertainty of riches, but we pray instead that we would fix our hope on you, the living God, and the Savior of all people, especially of believers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.